many people, this is the most difficult time of the year. And for many others, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's a joyful celebration. You get to be with family. You're reminded of special memories that you've had over the years. Also, those special memories can bring a painful reminder of not having certain people present with you or having broken relationships or having a loved one like Dick's wife who passed couple days after Christmas, two two years ago, you had a cancer. And then when you lose a loved one like that around this time of the year, this time of year brings back those memories of that loved one not being here. And so it can be really hard. But one of the things that's beautiful about this season is we're reminded of Jesus as the light of the world who shines brightly in the darkness. And we move towards that light. And the passage we're going to look at today says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overpower it. And I love that, that we are a part of a kingdom that's everlasting, that's unshakable, the kingdom of light. And God's brought us in to his kingdom through his son coming down to us to rescue us. And therefore we can endure the time that we're here with great hope. That though this world is broken and dark and dysfunctional and there's cancer diagnosis, there's loss of loved ones, there's job loss, there's there's poverty, there's injustice, there's war, there's all these things that hurt us, that discourage us, that rob our peace and joy, yet there is hope and there is an unshakable peace and joy that you and I can walk in because we're a part of the kingdom of God. Amen? This morning, we're going to look at John chapter 1, and actually before we do, I'd like to open up with must-have Christmas gifts. Over the past few decades, there have been some must-have Christmas gifts. Some of you can remember this one here from 1983, the Cabbage Patch Doll. 1983, this was a must-have. There's always this must-have gift that everyone has to go and get before Christmas Day so they can get it for their their child, right? Or so their child can have it. In 1985, there was the must-have Christmas gift of the Pound Puppy. Y'all remember this one? Uh, this is taken, by the way, from a website called Statistic Brain that tracked all these must-have Christmas gifts over the past few decades. How about this one? 1989, the Game Boy. A must-have, the Game Boy in 1989. Uh, how about this one? The Beanie Baby in 1995. Remember when all this was the rave? You could get this, I think this particular one, for $3,000 on eBay. If you want the vintage uh, Beanie Baby. I think, yeah. Um, Tickle Me Elmo, 1996. The must-have Christmas gift. How about this one? The the first iPod, 2002. The must-have, get the iPod. Apple has broken through with technology. The Wii, 2006. Uh, and the 12-year-old says, yeah, I still play with my Wii. How about the Kindle? The Kindle in 2010. She's downstairs. Yeah, that's, that's my Kindle. Um, Angry Birds board game, 2011. How about the Doc McStuffins dolls, girls, or those with girls? And lastly, 2015, the Frozen sing-along doll. What's the 2019 must-have Christmas gift? The tablets. If if you guys are still need to do some Christmas shopping, there's there's about ten ideas for you. Blast from the past that you can 
you can order online for your for your little one. I I personally enjoy the aspect of gift giving during Christmas time. I kind of have a love hate relationship with it. Actually, I enjoy it. I I love giving gifts, and it's it's a it's a joy to to receive gifts as well. But there's always that pressure though when somebody gives you some really good gifts, you feel obligated. Like I gotta get all these gifts out to all my family members, and it's like you can never get enough. For everybody, and so I often feel like I just don't have enough to give to everybody that I want to give to. And so it's like it puts stress on my soul, oftentimes unhealthy stress. And so that's one of the ways I let a good thing be turned into a distracting thing during Christmas time. Gift giving is a wonderful thing, and I think God enjoys it. That's that's a wonderful thing to participate. An- another aspect about it that that I enjoy but I don't enjoy is that my children seem to that this seems to be the biggest highlight of Christmas time. It's not baby Jesus come to save us. It's what's that new thing under the tree that I get to see and enjoy for a few days, right? So the the good gifts, physical gifts can eclipse the greatest gift ever, the, the meaning, the very purpose for why we celebrate Christmas. We can let the good things eclipse and blind us from seeing the most important things. The message of Christmas, according to J.I. Packer, is this in his book, Knowing God. He says the message of Christmas is that there is hope for a ruined humanity Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It was the most wonderful message the world has ever heard or will hear. Charles Wesley in his hymn, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, does a great job summarizing the message of Christmas in verse 2. Of his hymn, he says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King, this is the message of Christmas that we don't want to miss this season. The gifts are great. The, the, the lights are great. The parties and the, and the treats and the, the relationships with, with family members and friends and they're great. Enjoy all those good gifts. But let's slow down and focus on the reason for the season and enjoy the gift of the Son of God who was given for us. That we might live. Amen. And so we're going to look at John's gospel in John chapter one. Matthew and Luke both tell us about the story of Christmas. They give us the details in the story. You got Mary, you got Joseph, you got the manger, you got Bethlehem, you got the star, you got the shepherds, you got the wise men, you got King Herod, you got all these, these characters in the story of Christmas. But John's record of Christmas doesn't have all the storyline, all the characters. He just gets straight to the point and talks about the word, the word made flesh who came and he dwelt among us. And the apostle John 
gives us the meaning of Christmas in his gospel. In a very short prologue in chapter 1, he has a great economy of words. He's In his gospel, he has a way of saying profound truths that scholars have labored for hours and hours over to, to learn and exhaust and understand. And yet he, he's, he has a way of stating things that are simple enough that a child can understand them in his gospel. And so we're going to look in John chapter 1. And I'm going to pray and we'll read together. Father, as we open up the pages of scripture and as we look at the true meaning of Christmas and reflect on the incarnation of the Son of God. I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see glory, to be amazed, to be awestruck, and to be changed by seeing your glory in the pages of Scripture. And God, would you make this, as a result, would you make this one of the most meaningful, worshipful Christmas seasons for us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father Full of grace and truth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So here's the big idea. Jesus, the eternal word, became flesh and dwelt among us. He displayed glory that was seen and written about by the apostles so that we might see it as well and believe in Jesus. May God give us eyes to see his glory in the pages of scripture this morning. And so let's look at this. This is probably one of the best Christmas verses. There's a bunch of them, you know, like Isaiah 7, 14 or Matthew 1, 23 or Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 or Luke 2 as we looked at earlier. But but this one here is is profound. It's a short sentence. It's, it's just one sentence long and it's loaded with theology. Christmas is deeply theological, deeply theological. Okay, the word became flesh. Theologians call this the incarnation or to break it down in street terms, concarne, 
with meat. With con, con carne, right? When you get chili, you want it con carne. You want the meat in it, alright? The Word became flesh. He took on flesh. The creator of the universe stepped into the created world. The, the eternal Son of God stepped into time. He humbled himself. He came down and he dwelt among us. And John says, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So there's seven observations that J.I. Packer gives. Uh, in his in his book, Knowing God, he has a chapter on the incarnation, the incarnate word. It's a great chapter. If you got it, I encourage you to read it. But he points out seven things here. He says, he points out the etern- eternality of, of the word. Jesus, who Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. He points out the personality. Jesus, the word, was a person. Okay, we believe in what theologians call the Trinity, God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit all as one. And then the deity of Jesus, the word was with God and the word was God. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Muslims stumble at this. Most of us here, if not all of us here, believe this and embrace this, that Jesus was the Son of God, God the Son. He also points out the creating aspect of the Son, pointing back to the deity. All things were made through Him. And then the animating. Uh, in Him was life. Jesus is the source of life. He who has the Son has life. He brings the dead to life. Uh, and also the revealing. The, the life was the light of men. And then the incarnate. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And, and, and sh- shortly I'm going to walk us through seven implications. Massive implications of the incarnation. And what it, what it means for us. And how that should affect us. But first let's look at Eugene Peterson. And what he says in the message. He paraphrases this John 1.14. And he just has a way of breaking things down on the street level for us. The word became flesh and blood. And moved into the neighborhood. I like that. We saw the glory with our own eyes. The one of a kind glory. Like father, like son. Generous inside and out. True from start to finish. J.I. Packer again says, The Christmas message rests on the staggering fact that the child in the manger was God. Or as Charles Wesley said, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. So we celebrate that. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is something that we should slow down and ponder. It's mysterious. It's deeply mysterious. Fully God and fully man. The eternal God stepping in, taking on flesh, a human body. It's deeply theological and deeply mysterious and difficult to understand. So here's a couple of implications here of the incarnation. First is that the incarnation tells us of the generosity of God. When we, when we look at the incarnation, that, that God became a man and came into our world. He came near to rescue us, to, to be with us. It speaks of his generosity, or as John puts it, 
uh, grace. Jesus came full of grace. The glory that he manifested was described as grace. Grace. Generous inside and out. Generous inside and out. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is profound. That the king of the universe, who made it all, and laid aside privilege, and he came down into poverty, and he came down and lived in a poor family, and he experienced pain and suffering and difficulty and all the things that you and I have experienced in this life, yet without sin, so that he might... As Paul says, make us rich. And I don't think this is just limited here uh, to make us financially wealthy. There's plenty of Christians that aren't experiencing that. It's not a bad thing, but the, the richness that Jesus came to give us is much greater than mere material wealth. Amen. There are blessings. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us about spiritual blessing, blessings, rich, the riches of his grace. The Apostle Paul calls it. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that if God gave us his son, the most precious gift of all, then he is going to give us everything else with his son. And so he was full of grace. The incarnation tells us of the generosity of God. The incarnation is a manifestation of the love of God. The incarnation manifests the love of God. John 3.16 so here's, here's love and generosity right here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, this was grace come to us, come into this world. First John 4, 9 says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The incarnation tells us that God loves us. God loves you. He came for you. The incarnation also highlights the faithfulness of God. He was full of grace and truth. Uh, the NLT translates that phrase as he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness God when he says something he'll do it he comes through on what he says his word is true and you can trust it he is a promise keeper and the prophets told us God through the prophets told us that he would send a rescuer because this world was broken and there's suffering and sickness and great darkness overshadowing the earth and God didn't just leave ruined humanity to fend for ourselves. He sent a rescuer. He sent his son. Matthew 1, 21 through 23 does a, a good job of highlighting how prophecy was fulfilled. And he's definitely writing to the Jewish person. And he says, verse 121, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. By the way, the incarnation is an indictment on the world that we're sinners in need of a Savior. 
And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God will come through on his promises. God doesn't write hot checks that aren't any good. He doesn't give empty promises. He comes through on what he says. He is a promise keeper. So the incarnation highlights the faithfulness of God. The incarnation also shows us the humility of God. Jesus, as we talked about last week, learn from me. I'm lowly and humble in heart. I'm gentle in heart. We see Jesus as the humble king of kings. God humbled himself in coming down into this world taking on flesh, living in a poor family, in humble means, Jesus of Nazareth, and and, and growing up, submitting, Jesus submitted to his earthly parents and submitted to authority. He did what he was supposed to do. This is what Paul says, describing that. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself... Taking the form of a servant. Remember Jesus in John 13. He washed his disciples' feet. He came to serve, not to be served. So he came, he, he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see the humility of God, that the creator would step into the created, that he would that he would live inside of a a virgin's womb for nine months or so. That he would be birthed through a birth canal delivered, that he would breastfeed, that he would be vulnerable and, and, and at the mercy of his parents to care for him. And raise him up and take care of him. That he would humble himself in that way is profound. The incarnation is mysterious and deeply theological. Christmas is amazing. Okay, let's not just give in to the familiarity. Let's ponder the depth of what this means and what this implies for us. The incarnation points to the humility, shows us the humility of Christ. Also, the incarnation points to the sympathy of God. I love this. God not only came to us, but God gets us. Because he stepped into this broken world and he felt pain. He felt rejection. He was... He was the object of injustice and false witness when he did nothing wrong and yet he took it for you and me. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He knows what it feels like to be falsely accused. He knows what it feels like to suffer. He knows what it feels like to lose a loved one. He knows what it feels like to live in a fallen, broken world. He Jesus knows what it feels like, I'm sure, to have irritating neighbors. He, he knows what it feels like to go through puberty. He went through puberty. And he I'm, probably had pimples. He was fully man and fully God, which is a profound mystery. 
difficult for us to understand, but we accept it by faith because the Bible tells us this, that he, though he was the eternal word of God, pre-existent with the Father before the world ever was, he took on flesh. He came down. And he dwelt among us and he stepped into our world. And so he can sympathize. The author of Hebrews highlights this. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because of him, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see that? Because Jesus has gone through it, he's been tempted, he's suffered temptation. He, Jesus experienced being hungry, being thirsty. He experienced being tired. All this is in the Gospel of John, right? He experienced these things that as a person. He experienced betrayal. So he can sympathize with us. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He gets you. He knows your struggle. He cares. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He, he was tempted to turn rock in the bread. Literally tempted as a, as a man. He was tempted, tempted to bow down and worship the devil. He said, all these kingdoms will be yours if you'll just bow down and worship. He was tempted to tempt the father by throwing himself off the, the, the cliff, off the temple there. And, and each time he responded with, it is written, it is written, it is written. He took up the word of God and he fought with it. The word, used the word to fight against the temptation and to stand against the temptation. And you and I need to do the same. The incarnation gives us a pattern for godliness and holiness as well. But he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was he was tempted as we are yet without sin. And, and, and then the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let's draw near to the one who's full of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He gets you. You may not think anybody can get you, but God gets you. He understands. He feels you. He, he entered into this world and felt the pain, felt the suffering, so that he can sympathize us. He became killable. He became vulnerable enough so that he could feel pain in his physical body. And because he took on flesh and became killable, which was the plan... He was able to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And that's our hope. Is that he came and that he was our rescuer, our savior. The incarnation points to the sympathy of God. J.C. Rowell says this. Did the word become flesh? Then he is one who can be touched with the feeling of his people's infirmities. Because he suffered himself being tempted. He is almighty because he is God, yet he can sympathize with us because he is man. There's a, um, there's a quote 
from a lady named Dorothy Sayers who says this. He himself has gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life to the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money and to the worst of horrors, pain and humiliation, defeat, despair and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain for us and thought it well worth his while. And so the incarnation points to the sympathy of God. The incarnation brought us the presence of God. He moved into the neighborhood. He became our Emmanuel, God with us. He came to bring his presence with us. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't leave his people without his continuing presence. He sent his Holy Spirit to live and dwell inside of us. And you and I who are Christians have the spirit of the living God living inside of us as well. And so the incarnation brought the presence of God to us. And what a comfort it is. And lastly, the incarnation was a display of the power of God. In Luke's account, Luke 1, 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? So this is miraculous and mind boggling. Okay, this is supernatural. We have a supernatural element to our faith. All from, from God speaking everything into existence with his word to the virgin birth to the resurrection from the dead, the, the, the healings, the miracles, all the things that Jesus did, the miraculous signs and wonders that pointed us to his glory, the one who's full of grace and truth. There was a display of power that God showed even through the incarnation. The angel answered Mary answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And I love this response. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the incarnation speaks of God's power. It points to God's, it's a display of God's power as well. J.C. Ryle says this, did the word become flesh? Then he can supply us with a perfect pattern and example for our daily life. Having dwelt among us as a man, we know that the true standard of holiness is to walk even as he walked. He is a perfect pattern because he is God. But he is also a pattern exactly suited to our needs because he is man. And finally, did the word become flesh? Then let us see in our mortal bodies a real true dignity and not defile them by sin. Vile and weak as our body may seem, it is a body which the eternal Son of God was not ashamed to take upon himself and to take up into heaven. That simple fact is a pledge that he will raise our bodies at the last day and glorify them together with his own. So in summary, the incarnation tells us that God loves us, 
that God came for us, that God saves us, that God gets us, God is with us, God has been faithful and will be faithful to us. And so let's behold the glory that was manifested in the incarnation by reflecting on all the implications of God the Son becoming flesh. Let's behold it. If you read through the Gospel of John, one theologian points out that this this statement in chapter 1, that we've seen His glory, the glory of the only Son, the unique Son, full of grace and truth. He points out that this is this is a lens through which we're to see the rest of the gospel. So as we read Jesus doing the miracles, such as turning water into wine and healing the blind man and raising, raising Lazarus from the dead and providing bread to many, all are displays of God's glory. The way he treated sinners that came to him like the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8. She was met with grace. He's full of grace and truth. And so we see his glory in the pages of Scripture and how he lived and how he responded. He perfectly displayed the Father. He's the exact image and representation of the Father to humanity. He told Thomas in John 14, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you look at Jesus, you see the glory of God bundled up, gift wrapped in humanity. God's gift to the world. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, the one that God so loved the world that he gave his son to you and I. The incarnation points to that, to God's generosity, to God's love. Let us behold the glory of who he is and what he's done for us, that God has come to us, that God loves us, that God is with us, that God is for us, that God gets us, that God saves us, that God is faithful to us and he will be faithful to us for all eternity. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave us his son. And so everything else will be graciously thrown in. It's not a big deal compared to the wonderful gift of his son. And so in beholding the glory of God in the incarnation, do what Mary did. Treasure these things. Ponder these things in your heart. Reflect on these things this Christmas. Don't let the hustle and the bustle and all the good activities of this season rob you from some quiet time of reflection, pondering and reflecting on the glory of the incarnate word of God who came for us. And believe, believe in Jesus, the eternal word and receive him as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't done so, John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive them, verse 11 says he came to his own. And his own did not receive him. You know, receiving gifts, by the way, requires us to swallow our pride. In, in many ways. To receive grace, a gift grace, requires us to swallow our pride. Um, we have to humble ourselves in many ways to receive gifts. Especially gifts that maybe point to a particular need that we have. Okay, here, uh, Tim Keller in his book... Um, 
hidden Christmas. He writes about this and, and he says, imagine at Christmas time, if one of your friends or family members gives you a book about dieting. And it's going to take you some, and it's going to take some humility to receive that because there's an implication there. Am I overweight? Right. Okay. And then another friend or family member gives you a book about overcoming selfishness. It's going to take some humility to receive that gift because there's an implication there. Am I selfish? Do I need to overcome this? Am I overweight and selfish? I got to humble myself to receive that. And the, the, the implication that Jesus came to die for us implies that you and I need a savior, that we're sinners in need of a savior. We need grace. And it's those who recognize their need for the grace of God, who humble themselves and acknowledge, I do need grace. I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. I need God with me. It's those who humble themselves who are able to receive that wonderful gift. And so receive him, believe in him. He says that he'll give you the right to become his very own children. And lastly, be generous to others as God has been to you. Okay, If God was generous in giving his son for us in the incarnation, let's be generous. Let's, let's let the spirit of Christmas affect our lives and lead us to do the same as God has done for us. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, he says, The Christmas spirit does not shine out in Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, concern to do good to others, not just their own friends and whatever there seems need. As we've looked at seven implications of the resurrection, we looked at Jesus, the eternal word of God, taking on flesh to come for us, to save us, to rescue us. It's fitting for us to respond in worship. Like the angels, like the shepherds, like the wise man, like Mary and Elizabeth, there was joy, there was singing around this event. And so let us respond with, with this song as well. Lord, you are worthy of our praise of our devotion, of our lives. We thank you for giving us the greatest gift of all, yourself, your son, to rescue us, to bring us back to you. God, may our hearts be ignited with joy and enthusiasm about sharing that good news with those who are hurting, those who are broken, May we carry that light into the darkness in this season. And may we light up the atmosphere around us by speaking of you, by pointing others to you, by showing your love and your kindness, your grace and your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you.
and give you his peace.